welcome to episode 33 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast, recording in the late hours of Monday night. We've got Manny Ferreira with us uh, to talk about front-end web performance, and as usual, we've got Kevin. How's it, Kevin? Hey, Len, how's it going? And we've got Kenneth. Good evening, everybody. Hey, hey. Okay, so Manny, do you want to give the listeners a bit of an intro? Tell us who you are, where you come from, and uh, you know what brought you to front-end web performance? Sure, guys. How's it going? Um, yeah, I'm a front-end developer. I'm currently working at Superbolist as uh, one of their two front-end developers. Um, before that, I worked at Worldwide Creative, um, and I had the pleasure of working on a really cool um, news website, the IOL website. That was amazing. Um, as you know, that website you know, stayed the same for many years. And um, yeah, worldwide, we were able to redesign it and rebuild it, um, you know, thinking about a new user experience for the, the newsreaders as well as performance, which was something they'd never thought about before. Um, and before that, um, I'm actually staying in Cape Town at the moment. And before that, I used to live in, in Joburg and I used to work at Osiris. And I've been doing front-end um, web design and web development, gosh, for many years now. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much where my passion lies, uh, user experience and, um, you know, building awesome products on mobile and on the web. Um, yeah, I guess that's me in a nutshell. Well, that's that's so awesome. It's so awesome to have you on the show because I think this is a very relevant topic at the moment. People are very curious about web performance. So maybe maybe you can start us off with uh, just in general, I've got a website. It's not performing very well. Where should I start? What should I do? Sure thing. Um, well, gosh, the first thing you want to do really is think about measuring Um and there are a whole bunch of cool tools you can do that with. Um, Google have a couple of them and a couple of the best ones like uh, PageSpeed Insights. Um, that's a really nice um, sort of tool to get stuck into, especially if you're a beginner because it has a very um, user-friendly sort of interface and it has um, very easy to understand um, rules. Um, but uh, for me, the best tool out there is actually a web page, um, web page speed test.org. And there's actually a rapid tool um, that's around that that's called um, Speed Curve that, that I've been using over the last couple of years. And I've managed to get both companies to buy into it. Okay, so how do these tools work? You kind of go to a website and you plug in your URL and it then sucks it down and gives you a report, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, these tools uh, monitor, they basic. They kind of have the same um, tools you have in your, um, in your um, debug tools in your browser, but they're, they're much better in the sense that they, especially the web page speed test, you put your URL into the tool and you, you can actually get a timeline um, trace of, of the web page and you can get a visual representation of how your website performed you know um, they actually take screenshots of your website every half a second um, and you can measure against that um, I'm just trying to think um, yeah basically web page speed test and speed curve they're really the go-to tools 
developed by Google and like what you can do with them is, you know, for us, for me, you also want to like, you know, establish a, a base metric to measure against. And um, I always look at the, the first, the, the time to render on web page speed test. And also, if you haven't seen Speed Curve, I suggest you go see it and check it out. It, I think it costs about $20 a month. And it, it's, it has a really nice um, user interface, um, much more friendlier than the raw um, web page speed test in that they give you uh, really cool looking charts and they, they give you a breakdown of how your site performed on uh, at different um, resolutions. Um, because depending on how your site is built, I know um, with Superbolus we have a a single responsive code base, so it does perform differently at different resolutions. And um, Speed Curve reports this back to us. Um, we seem to be doing a lot better on on the mobile front, the iPhone and the the Apple resolution that's like 320 up to 1024. Um, we're pretty quick there. We're, I think one of our pages are loading in at one and a half seconds. Um, and this was after we did an optimization with Google web fonts. Um, because I found when I started, we had, we were loading Google web fonts, but uh, we were loading them synchronously and they they are render blocking so so the the website the text the default text was taking um was actually waiting for the whole uh web font payload to complete and be available in the browser before it rendered any text at all so for about two and a half three seconds you know we only saw the the framework of the website like the header but you didn't see any text so by loading the Google web fonts um, asynchronously, we were able to mitigate this issue and actually get the site to load in one and a half seconds, which was a big win for us. Well, yeah, because I mean, gosh, I'd spent uh, the, the Google web fonts are a tricky mistress. They they have a lot of caveats and um, idiosyncrasies. And I think I spent a better part of a week and a half researching and um, trying out different things and testing things and yeah going asynchronous loading of that asset was definitely the way to go um yeah uh yeah so so you've mentioned specifically uh, render blocking and those are the kinds of things that when you're rendering a page on a critical yeah. path that'll that'll uh, stop the browser from doing anything else uh, while those are happening absolutely uh, so web fonts one thing that we've mentioned what other things would block a ren uh, block the browser from rendering uh, that could cause a slowdown in page rendering speed yeah we you you kind of have to look at your at all your third party scripts as well and see how you can best orchestrate them because um they're definitely uh, render blocking um facebook and twitter are somewhat better at providing you you know the async flag and they don't block rendering um, sometimes. <laughs> um, so JavaScripts definitely render blocking. Um, what else? 
is CSS render blocking? Absolutely. CSS files. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I'm actually going through a process now where we have quite a large um, CSS file. Um, and I'm trying to, and I'm thinking about actually inlining um, some of the, the, the critical CSS that, that would render the template first before any of the data actually comes through and populates the, the UI. Um, but that, yeah, that's where I'm at with that. So CSS is definitely a render blocking. Um, that's an interesting way to tackle that problem. Have a small subset of your CSS yes. in the head before any yes. uh, style sheet link there. Okay, that's it. I guess I've been so used to like when indoctrinated, put your JavaScript tags before your closing body tag to prevent the JavaScript blocking and the CSS yeah, at the top. So at least your site looks like something. The, the one thing I'm curious about the fonts is that big knot, that two, three second font from Google Web Fonts, is that only on the first load generally? So, or is that on every load or on, don't they aggressively cache it? Um, well, there's, there's some, I've seen some techniques um, along, along my travels, looking at uh, researching it and they, they don't, the thing about the Web Fonts is the browsers um, deal with Web Fonts differently. Um, for instance, um, Firefox and uh, Google Chrome, um, they look at web fonts very differently. There's a three-second sort of um, timeout set set by Google. If 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 the font doesn't load in three seconds, um, then if you don't have a default font set up, then you know your font won't load. Um, so there's techniques out there that you could actually um, you know, load your web font and store it in local storage or as a cookie, and then you can load it, you know, thereafter. Um, you can, we don't, yeah, we don't um, store them locally on our servers. We definitely use them as, as CDN. Um, I've noticed that the new Firefox, um, the new Firefox actually, there's there's a point once, once your font loads, there's actually a point when, you know, on the the web the experience you sometimes get sort of a flicker between um, page views because you have a default font set of for instance say Arial yes. and then uh, when when your web font becomes available it does switch over but it's a it's a visual um, artifact you can actually see it happening and it's it's not very good but I've noticed in the newer Firefox browser that's not happening so uh, where I said I want to look deeper into that and see how if Firefox is caching the web font. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, that's something I've definitely often seen is uh, when loading a page that's using a large web font, one that I haven't used uh, used before that yeah. might not be in my cache is that uh, at least with Chrome, there's no text visible for a second or two while it's loading in. That's That's correct. That's exactly what happened to the, our site and we actually yeah we we set the we set a timeout and we set a default font um and there's actually an, uh, the the google web font um the 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 google uh, web font sdk has a bunch of events that get emitted when the web font is ready 
um, when the web when the web font is ready and downloaded in your browser, it actually fires off an event which you can hook into and um, set um, classes on your DOM objects so that you can manipulate so you can have a new font for instance what i what i did was i when the when the event fired that when font when fonts is loaded i would set a class on my html tag to say web font is loaded and then i would use that to then set my font in the css but prior to that i would have had a default state in my css um showing arial and yeah, you know, I mean it's a small thing that can get overlooked, which definitely was overlooked. And I mean it bought us an extra second to a second and a half, which is pretty amazing. Um, that is such a simple solution when you think about it. When you put it out like that, as yeah. you use the SDK. I was wonder why you would load the web fonts with JavaScript, and it never made sense to me. Thank you. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but let me go deeper into that. I only found that out much later on on my travels. I had found a library um, developed by the same developer who worked on the Google SDK. He had um, called, he had a, his own little library called Font Observer, which um, used JavaScript promises to uh, mimic the same um, native functionality that they were providing. You know, to to load the font asynchronously and fire off an event and give you something to hook into, you know, to manipulate the DOM. But yeah, we rolled that out, rolled that back and then just use the default SDK as it's much faster in the source of truth. And we trust Google, I guess. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Maybe sometimes Maybe a little too trust. much. <laughs> I guess so. So you mentioned uh, asynchronous loading though. Um, and I think you mentioned it in the context of web fonts, but I think it also applies uh, to the JavaScript. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your experience with that? Uh, particularly, how would one identify uh, elements of the page that could be loaded asynchronously? Um, and then how would you go about getting them to load asynchronously? Sure. Um, so the your script tag, when you embed a script tag, you, you can actually there's a HTML5, I think it's a data attribute um, that you specify in your tag to say async, and that's your first port of call. You add that to your script and that should do it. And that actually, you know, it kind of negates that old, um, that old um, idea of put your, your scripts at the bottom, because if you put your scripts at the bottom and you have your async tag on, it's not really going to matter where you, where you put your script. Um, if you've turned on asynchronicity on, on, on your script tag. So I take it an async script tag is not allowed to call, uh, to call document.write because that's basically why JavaScript blocks the rendering path. Yes. I wonder um, what happens if you do do a document that write an async script. <laughs> Gosh, I'll have to try that. <laughs> yeah, me too. We can do Sorry. that after the show. <laughs> cool. Exercise for the listener. Yes. Go break the browsers. Awesome. <laughs> it's not like it's very hard. Um, what else? Um, just also one thing you always keep in mind also is keep watching the size of your assets and speaking about if if i can go to build tools um there's a couple of like 
I, I try to keep an eye on my CSS file every time we add a new feature, um, even our bundled JS files. You, I, I don't know if you guys use Gulp at all to minify and concat scripts, but there's this one um, CSS, what is it called? Um, you can you can actually output the size of your files in your console as you're building or writing CSS. Um, I, you got it. I have to do that because every time a new feature comes along, that's extra bytes into the file that's being added to my already big file. Um, I think I, I recall on on the news website we had a 400 kilobyte file, which was pretty amazing. It was massive. That is big yeah, for CSAs. It was. Um, that was partly due because of um, having used some um, grid frameworks, um, SAS libraries like uh, Neat Grid Framework, and um, what's that other one? Um, not Compass. I didn't choose Compass. I chose the Bourbon. Bourbon. That was it. Yes. Yeah, I was using that and. Um, I didn't realize during the build process that actually my CSS was getting quite large. And even Gzipped, it was over 100 KB. So that was a challenge. And um, introducing a, a, you know, a couple of, you can introduce your perf tools into your build process to like monitor these things. And, you know, that came after um, learning a few hard lessons, <laughs> you know, seeing a slow site. Uh, that's actually a good idea. Fail your build if it goes over a certain threshold. Yes, yes, definitely a good idea. Would you use something like, I guess you can use something like PhantomJS and some tools to do the same thing? Because, yeah, well, I'll see if I can. I think I've seen something like this before. I'll, I'll like a Jenkins plugin or something that you can do this style thing with. It just came to mind. I'll find okay, that for yeah, the show cool. notes. Please share it with us, definitely. So you're using Gulp? At the moment, or did you use Gulp in the past for your front-end builds? Ah, interesting story. So I I chose Gulp um, for on the IOL site last year, and I used that for just better part of 18 months. Yeah, And then I moved to Superbolist, and they're actually also using Gulp and Grunt. So um, they... I, I chose Gulp because it was supposedly faster um, in terms of the build process. But to be quite honest, it's not really perceivable, you know, to the human eye. It's it's pretty relative. So we kind of use at the moment. I'm using both because <laughs> um, we have a we have a web a web guide, sort of like a, a style guide of all our widgets and components, and that's running Grunt and the production site is actually using Gulp. Yeah. That's cool. I understand one of the things that made Gulp, well, I guess that's why they tried to make it faster, but makes it easier to comprehend with is that it's all just the stream processing as opposed to Grunt that just generates a bunch of temp files and then you need to reprocess them into a different place and then reprocess them again into a different place and you're just hammering your disk and all kinds of weird directories. I don't know. I personally just haven't had good luck with, with Grunt. Uh, I see. Cool. So you like Gulp more. That's cool. I do, but lately I've been... So I tend to use what ships with other tooling. So with the Ember work, Ember uses Broccoli, which is, again, a completely different node build chain. And uh, that's quite fast and does the same incremental rebuilds and all the same tools. I, I dig that. And then on the Rails side, uh, we always use uh, Sprockets. It just ships with Rails and it's got its own pain points. 
but it does pretty much the same thing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde scenario at the moment <laughs> using both. And also when I'm playing with React, I use obviously Webpack and, but I haven't yet um, got the master of that. I haven't got the hang of that yet in terms of getting my SAS, um, you know, into that build process. So that's something for me to work out. So Webpack you specifically mentioned in terms of React. Um, I've seen a lot of conversation about Webpack going on, but haven't had a chance to really use it. Um, where does that fit into your whole tool chain? Does it fit next to Grunt or Gulp or one of those tools, or is it a completely separate tool that you would use? Uh, okay, interesting story because um, the IOL project, um, as the front-end developer, I was responsible for setting up those processes for rend for generating my CSS. So that was SAS. And I hadn't been introduced to React or Webpack at the start of the project. So I was using Gulp. Um, and then along came Mr. Evan Summers, our senior developer, and he introduced us to React and the whole tool chain. And obviously that needed to run on Webpack. So uh, we ran the project with Webpack and Gulp you know, concurrently for some few months, just purely because we needed to, you know, get something out. And I'd had my SAS project in Gulp running and I didn't want to mess with the, the timelines, <laughs> age old story. Um, so we were happily running Gulp and Webpack together, but, you know, I've seen some tutorials out there. We can get SAS to compile using text so that you don't actually need Gulp. Webpack apparently can do quite a lot so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking, I'm probably going to do that in the next, you know, pet project on the side. <laughs> Try it's, it's pretty cool that you guys just, in two cases, just use the tools side by side. I think a lot of time with these node-based build tools, it's almost like it becomes religious. Like you can only use the one thing and it's the only right thing. So just running them in parallel so you can actually focus on your work. That's pretty cool and brave. Yeah, it was okay. Hey, we didn't get in each other's way. I mean, my gulp file was very simple. It did one thing. Um, yeah, compile, concatenate, and write a file, a CSS file or two. And uh, on the JavaScript side for the static assets, any tricks there for managing them? Oh, gosh, for the moment, um, I can't really speak to the current project. But in the the IOL site, we were using Webpack to, you know, um, concatenate and minify our, a, a bundle, um, which is essentially the whole app in one bundle file. Um, and I recall we did have some, you know, we had quite a big file at one point. It was four megs, but Whoa. you know, we we realized the folly of our ways, and we did eventually get it to just one point five megs. It was just that, you know, while building the site at speed, you're, you're building all these, you're, we were mixing some jQuery um, stuff in there and, and we were just trying to get something out as quick as we could. So, yeah, um, I'm trying to think how it worked. I can't really speak too, too much to it, I'm afraid, because, um, you know, that wasn't really my <laughs> area of expertise at that point. But still, it's a cautionary tale of like, watch the size of your yeah. build artifacts, or you're just gonna keep 
kill people. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't even know it's happening <laughs> if you don't monitor and, and report to yourself. I guess the mobile users are probably hit the hardest with all this like reckless abandon of just bundling more stuff, more so than desktop users. Or am I missing the point? Um, yeah, well, here's a, yeah, the thing with the mobile users is they have, especially um, low-end phones, they kind of have quite a lot of limitations in their browsers, uh, like cache sizes. And I mean, I remember the couple of the browsers would actually um, crash just because they run out of memory that our files were too big. Um, but that was a really old <laughs> HTC. Um, and I can't stress enough, you must test on real devices. Um, definitely much better than, you know, you, you can't rely on Chrome or your dev tools or even Firefox dev tools to tell you what's really going on in your JavaScript or in your files. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I was just going to say, because there's not a... Uh, iOS or Android device out there with eight gigs or sixteen gigs of memory <laughs> and a monster <laughs> GPU. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Shucks. Um, just trying to think. There was a couple of instances where we we actually had a bug in the in the site, and we and it was in a particular browser, and we later found out that actually this this browser doesn't like um, the word let. Uh, as a variable that you've been you've been used as a variable declaration just didn't understand it um so we had to roll back and carry on using vars and things like that yeah flip even though it was a browser that was supposed supposed to be uh yes what what was it yes ES five or is six yes five that's yeah yes six was for the lead but it didn't understand it uh, i think it was an old ipad one or something Oof. Yeah, but we had customers, you know, they would email us, they would email support, and they would tell us, this is my browser, and we can't tell them to update their device or their phone, so we have to adjust our code accordingly. <laughs> and that's only the ones we find out about, the people that are, actually do take the time to let us know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, is there, like, like, I guess React, in a way, kind of changed the game for us with this whole blowing away, like, Dom diffing or blowing away the Dom and just outright replacing stuff. And I guess it's kind of been adopted far and wide and you've played with React a little bit. Can you give us a little bit of insight of how that new way of thinking about rendering works and like how much faster it really is compared to the old way we were doing things? Yeah. Okay. So like the, there was an instance when um, we were building the navigation and um you know we were reliant on a so what react actually forced me to do and forced a couple of us to do was to go back to basics um because you know usually these builds have to happen at pace and especially in a in a uh, an agency environment where you have your your build by hours so you you kind of you start a project and you're like okay what third party plugin jquery plugin can i throw in there quickly and get this thing up and going that has a mega menu and a side uh, off canvas menu and it must just come ready and all i have to do is change the css so that that sort of um way of thinking doesn't work in react because they're at odds against each other jquery and react 
it was a battle. We had a battle on our hands. Like we couldn't get some, we couldn't get our plugins that we were uh, used to using to work. So we actually had to uh, resort to um, basic CSS transitions, um, displaying and hiding elements. And that actually was, uh, uh, it was quite cool to do because then that actually lessened the amount of code that was going into the project. Because as you know, these some of these plugins can be very big. Um, but we didn't come to that realization uh, very easily. Like, very easily, it wasn't instant. It was over some time after headbutting the wall a bit, and then we actually realized, no, we've got to just scale this back and rewrite this in just HTML and CSS and vanilla JavaScript. In you know, in some instances where we could. Um, so I guess from a performance point of view, that was a good thing. We were loading less script in the project, and you know, our concatenated bundle file became less, and the CSS was taking over the work of some of the JavaScript. And I guess no code is faster than some code, <laughs> just by default. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I never, I didn't think about React helping you to ship smaller bundles. I always just hear yeah, like virtual DOM diffing or, or, or whatever they call it. I might be butchering the terms here. Kevin, I don't know if you've uh, had a look at this kind of stuff yet. Uh, not particularly uh, in the React frame or the virtual DOM diffing, but I, I can speak to you just, you know, you work, when you're working on something and you just throw in uh, extra plugins to use this, some of the simplest things. For example, you bring in the whole of jQuery just because you want to do some to hide an element or to uh, do an AJAX request. And there are either smaller libraries that can make things fairly easy to do things like you don't need the whole of jQuery to do AJAX. Uh, there's that fetch library that works quite well. Uh, you can, instead of having to go and write your own XHRs from scratch, of course. Um, but the other end of that is as code ages um, and it rots as things do, uh, uh, you know, the, the features that you're building change. It's easy to also leave code behind that may not even be used anymore. And we, we went through a phase where we removed quite a bit of code that saved a couple hundred kilobytes of our final bundle, just of code that wasn't actually needed anymore. Sure, that's amazing. Yeah, awesome. oh, that's big. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be doing flick flacks. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go down a slightly different line uh, in terms of the, what, what the what configuration is important on the server side to improve front end performance. So things like we mentioned gzipping is something that's quite important, um, and you want to make sure that you're or that you're sending the fewest number of bytes down the wire as possible. Optimizing that against the time it takes to actually compress those bytes, I guess. But uh, what other server-side configuration should we worry about? Things like caching, gzipping, anything else around those? When I was researching the the, the Superbless project, I was, you know, putting it through its paces and like trying to figure out what we could do to make it faster. I came across, um, you know, we could use, uh, you know, the I can't speak to the server side, but like you could. Use. I was thinking of you know getting the guys to do like something with service workers, um, where we could like cache some stuff on the on the client, 
perhaps um, I'm just trying to recall. Yeah, how do service workers actually work? Because I've read and like cursory glance over stuff where people show it almost like it's got this magic caching ability. If you've played with it a bit, I'd love to like clear some fog of war. <laughs> oh, no, I haven't. I haven't played with it immensely. I just had. I, I looked at a few tutorials, and I was thinking of for us. I thought we could, you know, store our web fonts and uh, our critical CSS. Um, but you know, that's going into sort of like the offline web apps sort of um, way of working. And yeah, the guys weren't keen on that because they were afraid of there being too much, um, too many bugs introduced by our, us developers, I guess, you know, because the more code you write, the more bugs. If the server can cache these assets, rather let it do that natively than us. But it does look interesting, the service workers, and I do want to play with it more. Yeah, that, that stuff I've seen, I guess the only examples that caught my attention with the service workers were the caching. I might butcher it. I'm sure people can go read up. I'll find some links uh, for us more about it. But some of the examples I saw is basically cool. you can, the service worker can be a, almost like a transparent proxy. It gets the first choice to do anything for <clears throat> the code that applic your application is requesting. So yeah, you could serve assets. You can almost intercept the URLs and rewrite them and serve them out of the browser's local storage. It looks nuts. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, amazing. Exactly. But, but Kevin, to get back to your to your server stuff, I've got a, like just a few things there that I could um, throw in that I've learned from the years of deploying Rails apps, and we religiously do these things. I guess the first one is <clears throat> the far futures expires, uh, which is fantastically useful if you can guarantee that your assets have a unique URL for their contents. So, and. Uh, that what Rails does is it rewrites the file names to include an MD5 hash of the asset. And I know the Ember toolchain also does this and a bunch of other front-end tools have started doing this. But And if you've got that unique URL to a static asset, then you can configure your web server to tell the browser to cache it for a year, which is fantastic. Um, it's also... Uh, like even if your caching was configured like wrong or no caching and the browser starts applying its own smarts, uh, it's great because every time you change your assets, you get unique URLs. That's definitely one. The gzip stuff is really important. Uh, if your browser like Nginx supports pre-gzip content, even better because then you can just compress this, the, your assets when you compile with like the maximum gzip settings and then you just have a .gzip file in your root as well and the browser ships that with no compression overhead on the cpu which is also a great win yeah and most uh tool chains now support just um setting that building that dodgy sub file right off the bat yes it's kind of kind seen. of become a standard so that's great and then one of one small little thing i've picked up with the ember cli stuff which is fantastic as they built your they built two JavaScript and two CSS files for your project. So the one's your own app, and then the other one's the vendor files. So any like third-party plugins you bring in, any stuff you bring in from Bower components, all that stuff goes to the vendor JS file, and that tends to change less frequently than the app. And they just spit out those four that is assets. Nice. Yeah, it, it's a simple, that is nice. but it, make, 
it makes a nice difference. I really, really like how they've made that a sensible default. And then again, you get the unique file names when you do the production builds. So you just, again, set your server headers to let those things be cached for a year, which makes a hell of a difference for people. Cool. Let's check that out. Yeah, the Broccoli tool chain's nice. It's still young, early days, and I think Embers its only big user. Although Angular 2 is going to be built on the Ember CLI toolchain, so a lot of those plugins are going to be used there. And there was another project I heard of that's also going to be using the same toolchain. So hopefully it gets to more people. No, that is cool. That that whole principle of just making sure that we're shipping fewer bytes over the wire. So HTTP caching, very important. Um, and so anything else that we can look at doing server-side uh, for improving our end-user performance? I don't think so. Nothing off the bat. The caching makes the biggest impact. I mean, there's some promises with HTTP2 uh, that you can download assets concurrently over the same connection. So you save the cost of opening and closing connections, especially if you've got SSL opening and teardowns. Um, but I mean, HTTP2 ideally should be transparent it should just come you should just flip the switch on your web server and go there's been a lot of folks that said uh you don't need to uh, concatenate all your files anymore uh you don't need to maybe gzip them as much but there's been some stuff out of the khan academy where they undid a lot of the optimizations for http1 and said this is the new way uh that things are supposed to work with http2 and then they measured just like Manny said in the very beginning, like you measure so you know what your baselines are and they saw they were off worst. And then they kind of did this halfway uh, thing between like the HTTP2 promise of the future and HTTP1 like kind of thing. I'll find the link. It's 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 interesting. Uh, but yeah, that to me should be transparent. I think there's other things that are way more in our control. A quick question. Oh, yes, sorry. Fire. Um, is there any, I mean, when I was looking at, when I was doing my research for our performance testing recently, I, I saw that Akamai were the only people, you know, offering HTTP two servers. Is that a, a correct or incorrect? Maybe for I mean, where can we get where can we get services that offer HTTP two now today? Ultra, maybe Cloudflare already supports yes. it. Uh, otherwise, Nginx, uh, the newer versions, it's in there. Um, Apache should be just a module that you throw in uh, if it's not coming out by default by now. So it's slowly starting to to pop up. I think if you browse yeah, and in Go, there's that Caddy web server that's also now HTTP two. Yes, that's very true. I know there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening in HTTP two in Go land. Yes, it's it's now the like transparent default even for Go clients, HTTP clients, yeah. which is pretty cool. <laughs> So it's coming, but it's it's going to be a while. And I mean, we still have to support all the browsers for quite some time. I know this one, I think it's the Jetty web server. They're experimenting with an add-on or something. I don't know the Jetty parlance, but one of these Java web servers, they analyze the traffic that the servers is serving back to the clients in terms of static assets and then it can dynamically start doing these server push niceties uh, that http2 as a protocol has so there's like a whole new world coming on that side that we can get ready for and that's kind of nice because you can imagine the browser asking for a css file 
and along with the CSS, the server instructs it to also start downloading the font even before it's even passed uh, that line. Or it starts pushing all the images, the logos and share buttons and stuff that's important long before it even got to a line that that passed that. But yeah, it's we get we'll sit, we can sit here in a year again and recap the status of HTTP two. There's still a lot to figure out. Yeah, sounds awesome. Yeah. And it can make our life so much more difficult if our tooling isn't up to snuff. Yeah, that's yeah. It's such an important thing when you're looking at performance to start off by just measuring your baseline. And if you're going to make any change, measure it step by step. Yeah, so I guess I'm curious about some tips and tricks for rendering performance. So if once we now have our CSS now JavaScript loaded, async or synchronous, and our fonts are there and everything's kind of doing its thing. Like what's the kind of things that can typically go wrong then to make the site slow? And what are like the easy low hanging fruit stuff that we can do to remedy that? Well, um, you know, I guess you also got to think about your, your, your views and, you know, all your mobile, your tablet and your desktop users and how you think about them and how you serve image assets to them. Um, you know, the, the new site was quite um, image heavy, so we had to optimize for for different um, form factors and serve the mobile device the appropriate sized images because you don't want the browser to have to calculate the size of the image by forcing the browser to calculate the size of an image by sending the mobile browser a really big uh, thousand pixel image and asking it to shrink it down to 320 those sorts of calculations are very very bad for you know the browser performance that sort of thing introduces a lot of jank and it makes the browsing experience very slow and um juttery because uh, your browser is essentially you know overusing its resources so you want to make sure you send down the correct size image down the pipeline um and you there are a couple of cool plugins um out there to um you know um, orchestrate your image assets um there's a new um spec coming out and there are for the uh, call there's a new spec um called the picture element um you can use the picture element to um serve up different sized images based on a media query and you know that's not obviously fully supported um i think it's ie8 and 9 you're going to need a polyfill library uh, there's one by a chap called scott Geel, and he's got the i think it's the picture full picture full if i'm not mistaken but i'll send you the link in the show notes and that's pretty awesome i've used that a couple of times on a few projects and one at the moment um, so you've got to manage that stuff um, on the client side. I suppose you could also do it on the server side, but gosh, I haven't got experience in that in that sense. So on that for the images, I don't know if I've got it right, but I'll put it out there. My understanding is if you use media queries in your CSS, um, if you've got an image set, um, let's say like you do a logo and you want like the high res uh, or high uh, DPI uh, version for iPhones and newer Androids and you want the normal one served. If your normal file was in a, was not in the, in a media query, 
the browser would the mobile browser would first download that file and then it finds the matching media query for the higher resolution one and it would go and hit the asset again like a different version of it and that means that almost all your assets the moment you start getting media query sensitive you need to have this guard that every single thing is in a media query but then you also need to handle fallbacks for browsers that couldn't support the media queries or am i smoking my socks um, no, not necessarily. You're, you've actually raised a good point. Um, generally, for okay, for logos, uh, you must use um, SVG if, if if the logo if the people have an SVG file, and then you fall back to a PNG file. And you want to use libraries like Modernizer to orchestrate this sort of thing um, to to check for features in the browser that is hitting your site you know modernize is a great library it checks what features are available and gives you some hooks to say oh if it's if if no svg then load the png and speaking to your um question about the media queries and how to put um, images and things in certain media queries or outside the media queries when you shouldn't load um, with a pictureful element, it's all in line in the DOM in your index or your your HTML page, and you shouldn't load images um, using your CSS file if you can help it. Um, rather, go go for the pictureful element because you can do it in line. You actually do the media query in line, and this actually stops the. It's quite. It's the browser is more intelligent now. It knows. Oh, it's this media query and the screen is this size it's 320 and it hits that declaration in your markup and it will only load that image and it will it, ignore all the rest um so you definitely don't want to load images in your css if you can help it um that's really cool thanks cool um trying to think what else gosh there's so much <laughs> One thing that I found particularly useful, especially if you've got images that only show up after a user has interacted, for example, opening a popover or modal or something like that, um, is once a page is loaded, insert an element that's off the page that includes those images to just prefetch them in the background. So when that does show up, if it's an expected interaction, that when that when it does show up, that it's immediately it's already loaded in browser cache. Ah, uh, yes. Definitely, that's a good technique. I think, I think they, yeah, they did implement that, implement that on IOL, but I wasn't really involved in those <laughs> details. So sorry, I can't speak to it. But that is a good, yeah, pre prefetching, definitely. Yeah, we did prefetching on both apps actually on the Angular app, the first version of IOL. Um, um, before we went React, um, that was a technique the the chaps used to actually um, make the site seem perceivably faster, even though it wasn't. It was just you know prefetching the next page while the user was was um, you know so they were still using the same amount of data and they didn't know, know any better. Yeah. You know? In many ways, it's the same as setting a script to run asynchronously. Just that once everything is loaded, we are still busy doing some things in the background that the user is perhaps not aware of, but impacts the perce perceived performance later. But that's pretty cool. This, I mean, I've read about these prefetching the pages. I didn't think it was actually like rolled out here locally in production. 
So as a simple example, you'd have like the top 10 articles of the day and basically all those links to the articles you said that, I think it's rel prefetch or something, but you set that prefetch property and the browser goes and gets them because you know the users on the news list, they're most likely going to click through. And you don't put that on the about us, contact us, or back to the home page. Like, is that the kind of thing that you meant with yeah. prefetch? Yes, exactly. Um, that is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. And there was there was also another optimization. Gosh, um, because Angular didn't have um, server side rendering. You know, we gosh, there was a really nice trick he did where he actually um, built built up the page. And kind of just swap that once the oh, no, it's best I not go into it because I can't remember it. I think I, I've got to guess what you're saying. It's kind of that idea where you on the server render just like a skeleton of the page that somebody could quickly start interacting with, and then all the JavaScript comes after the fact, and then something yes. like Angular, Angular takes over. The, yes, the Ember guys are working on a similar thing called Ember Fastboot. And that's the same kind of thing. It renders it on the server, uh, the exact URL that you hit, and it like renders it with Ember there, ships it to the front end, and then all the JavaScripts follow suit, and then the app kicks in. And I know people have, like, um, the, um, Ben Yannicka also on our Polar Bear episode, Kevin mentioned that he's doing server-side rendering for quite less the same reason, to speed things up. Yeah, kind of to get the user, put something in front of the user that they can start interacting with, even though things are still busy downloading. I've got a question around the prefetch. Um, I noticed a while ago that Google suddenly started opening the first um, the first search result far quicker than anything else before. Is that now also using something like prefetch on that? Then if you've noticed the same kind of thing, but uh, if you click on the first search result, at least in Chrome. I find that that next page opens just about instantly now. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. <laughs> I know that when you, now that you bring up Google, I know that Google is ranking um, non, you know, non-optimized mobile optimized sites negatively. So if your site isn't mobile friendly and fast, you're not going to get up there <laughs> and on the first page anymore it's amazing yeah i forgot about that so that's where the google page uh, insights tool becomes so important that you understand because then you get a chance to see the performance of your web page the way google sees the performance of your web page yes exactly um yeah so we're pretty much following google's lead in all these things <laughs> as it's their tools that we're using so they're telling us how to make it faster yeah. Has, has anyone played with um, uh, what's that stuff they've just released for mobile performance AMP HTML? What is it? I just saw the tweets, but I didn't haven't uh, played with it yet. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's something to look at if you're doing publishing, like news and things. They really strip things down. I think, but re, yeah, I'll share a link in the notes. Yeah, that's supposed to be compatible with normal HTML. I understand. I guess it's just some kind of okay, we'll put the notes in. Um look, yeah. Okay, we have cool. so many <laughs> we have so many things to juggle. Yes. Mm. Um 
So uh, going back to the Google uh, prefetching, are you saying they actually are prefetching the web page when you click the link on on the search result? I'm not sure. I've just found many times I've done a Google search, and if I hit the first result, that the page opens literally as I'm releasing the mouse button. It's already loaded. Oh, it's amazing. Hmm. I wonder what they're doing. It doesn't always happen though, so I don't know if there's some special circumstance for that, or if it's a beta feature or something. Maybe I'm just a guinea pig, and I don't even know it. <laughs> and uh, I have a question, also a general question, guys. How do like you guys in your organizations, how do people, do people think about performance much or is it just the devs and the, maybe do the business people think about it or do the designers think about it from your experiences? Passes back to Kevin. Yeah, I think from, from my point of view, we know that performance impacts bottom line in terms of business. So the business guys are definitely very interested in getting quicker performance. Um, I mean, Kenny, you and I worked together a few weeks ago and working on some JavaScript performance issues mm, and mm. Get it, getting things loading a lot faster. Uh, it's, it's definitely not something that only devs think about from my perspective. In fact, I think sometimes the, uh, the guys on the business side feel the pressure far more than we do to get things loading quicker because we're looking at the, uh, the cool stuff of like, hey, we're able to render 40,000 DOM elements in like two seconds or whatever it may be. Uh, where they're like, well, why is it not one second? Which is a legitimate question from the business side when customers want the thing to work in one second. Yeah, I guess from my side, I've just, there's a bunch of stuff we've always been doing. It's part of our tools, so it's easy. I take it that's like comp compressing the assets and concatenating them, GZIP, having the engine X set up so it always ships these things well into the future. The Ember tool chains kind of do exactly the same. So I've been spoiled from that regard, but also leverage it. Like I know it's there, but I must say you've definitely made me aware of there's a lot more that we should just do. I thought a lot of these things were just, you know, like it makes for a great article on Sitemint or it's just like something else that Ilya Grigori blogs about. And you go like, okay, cool. But Google's now is the rest of the world's 10 years. <laughs> but, um, the, yeah, the fact that you guys rolled it out successfully two years ago on a local property, and now you keep on doing it, like that kind of shows me I need to go reevaluate some things that I just put down as basics. But other than that, like Kevin says, the business guys do take note, and sometimes it, it might not be particularly useful, but they'll just be like, this is slow. And then, you know, these people are, they're comparing you to get against Google properties and Facebook properties yeah. and New York times and wherever else they're busy browsing. So, you know, you need to just get in there and step it up because it's definitely in all of our abilities to make these things faster. We just need a lot of this knowledge that you've shared with us and like embrace that into as part of the way we work. That's, that sounds awesome. Yeah. That's pretty cool. You reminded me that speed curve actually has a awesome view where they pitch you up against your competitors. So I recall when we were building the news site, I could see how our site was progressively getting better as we were getting things right. <laughs> and we were able to compare it with like um, New York Times and The Guardian and right there in this tool. It's pretty amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And people love that. Just there's like suddenly you can compare it against something and go. Yes, 
Yes, exactly. And what I found um, for like the non non techie people, um, showing them, yeah, showing showing them pretty graphs and um, charts in the form of the speed tool, the speed curve tool. You know, it was really uh, a great tool to get their buy in to even think about performance as well. So, you know, it's it's much easier to show them good looking graphs and charts than like some debug tool or <laughs> some numbers. Yes, no, I definitely agree. Yo, man, that's fantastic. Is is there anything we missed? I mean, we've covered managing assets, JavaScript and CSS, tools around it, prefetching pages, server-side rendering, and this whole isomorphic JavaScript, this new AMP markup from Google, web page speed test, and page insights, and there's, like, I've got pages full of notes. <laughs> is there anything else we missed that that's kind of critical, even if it's just up to the listeners to go explore the, the idea by themselves? Um, actually, there is a lot. I guess I have some really cool um, notes to share with you guys, like some books. Uh, you already mentioned a couple of names, but the, there was another lady who works at Etsy. I can't think of her name now, but I'll share. She wrote a really book, a good book on web performance, and I'll share that with you guys as well. Yeah, gosh, <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's just to look at, yeah, look at these people and follow. You know, you got to stalk them. I stalk these performance heads out there, these guys, and you know, try stay up to date. Not even try. It's, it's what we love doing. So you just do it instinctively anyway. Yeah, no, some good advice. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, guys, oh. should we head off into picks? I think so. Kevin, do you have anything first? Yeah. Okay. So two, hopefully relevant picks this week. Um, we started off the show talking about um, measuring and instrumentation. So I'm going to pick stats D. Uh, if you if you want to instrument things on your server, so things like nginx, uh, response times, measuring the number of 200 versus 304 status codes you're sending and pretty much anything that uh, that you can measure you can probably send that as a metric through into stats d um stats d is kind of an a, a, a point of aggregation for uh for stats and it works over udp so the clients are kind of fire and forget uh you don't have to worry about stats d taking your sites down for example uh, and from there, you can then pipe it into useful tools like Datadog or Graphite or uh, InfluxDB. Oh, Grafana. Just to, to, yeah, there are a dime for a dozen of them. Uh, go look up some tools that uh, StatsD can target. So it's, it's a really nice kind of a common point that a lot of tools are now supporting for instrumentation, uh, both from the um, pushing stats into StatsD and then reading stats out of StatsD into, into these pretty graphs and things. Um, so yeah, take a look at StatsD and then in terms of, uh, web performance, uh, just the Chrome dev tools are amazing. So kudos to the, uh, to Paul Irish and the Chrome dev tools team there. Um, the particular one that I want to call out there is the timeline. If you pull up the Chrome dev tools, hit the timeline and just refresh the page and go and play with the data. Go have fun. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Manny, you want to go next? Sure. Um, okay, so CSS stats um, is a cool online tool. Um, you, what it does is it measures your um, your file size of your CSS file, and it also shows you how many selectors, declarations, and properties you've used. 
um, how many, it just basically really gives you a very high level view with charts um, of how much you've put into your CSS file just to, you know, so that you, you can monitor it and see how you're doing as you're going along. And it's a web-based tool. Um, another one um, does this performance tool called uh, Big Rig. Um, what it does is it it measures the time it takes for your um, your DOM elements to render and uh, get drawn on the screen. Um, it's by a chap called uh, Paul Lewis. He's a Google developer, and you can. Use the, I think, yeah, use the command line tool. It's very easy. It's a gulp, gulp tool. You, you input a URL and then it spits out metrics of, um, in milliseconds of how long it took to parse your HTML, how long it took to parse the JavaScript, how long it took to, yeah, all those, all those things, those cool things. Um, but yeah, all this stuff is also in the Chrome dev tools, but you know, we're, we love geeking out and this is just such an awesome tool. And my third and final tool is my favorite speed curve. That is amazing. Kenny, what do you have for us? Um, I forgot everything I picked before the show, but I'm going to add Ilya Grigoric's <laughs> uh, book on web performance, uh, browser networking performance. That thing is amazing and loaded. And it, it unpacks a lot of the stuff. Uh, we didn't get a time to go towards the more deeper stuff, the impact of HTTP2, open connections, um, persistent connections, battery life uh, considerations for mobile devices. Like it goes really, really deep. But I guess that's that's what happens when you've got somebody that's on a, what an advocate for Google's web performance team, like when they write a book. So that one's particularly good. And I think it's the only one I'm going to pick. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Cool. So unfortunately, Len's audio has balked out halfway through the podcast, but uh, his picks will be in the show notes. Guys, thanks for the discussion. And Manny, thanks for coming on. It was a really cool chat. Uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. I was, I was really chuffed when you did. <laughs> it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and keep up the good work. I'm glad to see somebody's using the stuff that I thought was so far in the, in the future. We'll just have to make it our new now. Absolutely. Yeah, man. <laughs> cool. Very nice. Yeah, that is episode 33 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, please do subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us some ratings. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter at ZA Dev Chat. Um, yeah, that's it from Kenneth, Manny, myself. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.